0: We're wrapping up our our series on the Holy Spirit, Uh, and this should not be taken to mean we've clocked it, You know, we've figured out the Holy Spirit, we've got it all sorted, Um, or we've even scratched the surface of this topic, it's one of those things we could talk about for a long time. But I think the way I've thought about it, rather than sort of finishing a series, it's sort of like, to me it feels like we've kind of crested a hill. We've, as a church, we've we've crested a hill, and we're we're now on a sort of sense of looking out on a on another plateau and a new landscape together. Um, and it's not that the Holy Spirit's behind us; it's the Holy Spirit is with us as we as we're looking out onto this new landscape as a church and thinking through what does it mean to be a people who are empowered by the Holy Spirit together um, to walk out into this new territory which is before us. So um around the the start of the year um, Liz actually had a picture I hope she doesn 't mind me sharing um of i 'm going anyway sorry, um, <laughs> uh, of a of a uh, us being a little bit like a grub you know like a cicada grub down in the deep in the in the dirt um or you know like a lava and um concealed in the earth but with a sense of limited perspective um and that God was telling us, you know, there's more, there's a bigger world out there, Um, and I I sort of feel like it's almost like that, the sense of, what is this bigger world that God's calling us into, this, as we, um, as we find our wings, and as we find our voice as a church, it's very exciting, Um, you know, we hold these impressions lightly, but it does feel like God's stirring some stuff up for us as a people, which is exciting, so um, apologies that I'm somewhat stuck on repeat on this topic, Um, but... Whenever I have the privilege of preaching or whenever I have the privilege of writing to you i 've been banging on about this idea that that um, we need to move beyond an individualistic way of thinking about things like salvation and church and um, the process of of becoming more like Christ. We need to move beyond individualistic ways of think about it, start to think about it in collective ways, um, because I think that is the rich promise that that God has for us. the more we can settle into this understanding of an identity as a people that the, the bigger this world will get for us as a church. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned in the in E! The News, Christian life is not just a one-on-one with God sort of personal, private holiness project. It's, um, it's a corporate experience, primarily. It's a corporate experience of being empowered together to carry God's name in the world. And none of us can achieve that. None of us have the ability to, ch- to sort of carry God's name in the world alone. We need each other. Um, we need the Spirit, and we need deep connections with one another. So that's uh, that's what's before us. And with that in mind, um, the teaching team we met and we pondered and we prayed about what, how to follow on from this empowered series. What needed to you know what we needed to cover for the season we're in, and we sensed that um, what we really need to talk about is this idea of making things visible making the spirit visible um, uh, you know what does it look like for us not just talk about the spirit for but for the spirit to be something which is visible in our in our life and in our church as a people or to use a different biblical metaphor what does it look like for urban to be fruitful to be a place where the fruit is is evident is on display <clears throat> two parts of scripture. Um, come into view most prominently with this metaphor of fruitfulness. Um, the first is John 15, which Sarah read out this morning for communion. Um, and the second is Galatians 5, 22, 23, the, the fruit of the Spirit. Um, so Paul talks about um, the Spirit bearing fruit in us. And in, and in John 15, it's all about being fruitful in Christ. So if you've been in church for a while, you've probably heard Um, The Fruit of the Spirit preached about, maybe I I have, I've preached on it myself. Um, And um, you may have heard it preached in a way um, that primarily thinks about it in the individual terms. So how can I become more peaceful? How can I become more loving? How can I become more gentle? Uh, And on and on. And, um, or at worst, you know, you've heard it, yeah, like that, almost as a list of behaviors, like, oh, okay, that's one more thing I have to do. I have to now work on being this, and then I have to work on being that. Uh, it can be quite uh, overwhelming when we approach the fruit of the Spirit in this way as a, as a task list. Um, so we're not going to do it that way. We're, we're, we're thinking together about this idea of collectively how the how the Spirit bears fruit in us. What, um, what it would look like for our church to be a picture of Jesus, a, a Jesus-shaped, Spirit-filled community. Um, so that's what we're going to be doing for the next few weeks, next four weeks probably. Um, And that being said, you know, we're not implying that uh, bearing fruit is just a passive process which we don't have an individual part to play in, Um, something which we have no control over. We're not saying that. Um, We're not negating the individual experience of this stuff. We're just scaling it up, if you like. It's the individual plus the the community. Um, And that will help us to avoid... uh, um, sliding into messages of self-improvement, which, you know, your algorithm is much better at than, than we are. You know, <laughs> your algorithm will give you all the self-improvement strategies you need um, and more, but you won't get that on Sunday. We're going to be talking about Jesus and what he does rather than what we have to conjure up. So let's look at John 15 again and um, that beautiful image of uh, of abiding in Jesus and bearing fruit me clicker is rebelling against me. Again. <laughs> Thanks Lance. Um, but yeah just before we get to, to John 15 um, I thought we could back up and just give a little context as to what's going on. So the setting of this famous speech of Jesus is uh, he's at the table at the upper room um, the night before his his arrest and crucifixion and Jesus is comforting his disciples in the knowledge that he's about to be taken away from them, um, but that he will go to prepare a place for them. And in the interim, will send the Holy Spirit, who he calls the Advocate and the Spirit of Truth. So of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, uh, this: he says, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you, you all, so it's in the second person plural, You all know him, for he lives with you all and will be in you all. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Then he goes on to say, uh, next slide, Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, who the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. And then he launches into this famous um, Metaphor of himself as the vine. It's great. We've got the um, cross here this morning, which has got the vine on it. Um, that's that's I didn't even notice that till now. Um, but yeah, Jesus as the vine and the Father as the gardener, um, and the disciples as fruit-bearing branches. So as we read, don't forget that this is all in the context of the sending of the Spirit who will be the one who will empower this group of disciples to remember everything that Jesus has modeled and taught them so that they may remain in him and in his words. And um, hopefully in your mind, this will also be connecting back to what I was talking about last week, which is this. This idea that um, the Old Testament prophecies, like particularly in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, about God giving us a new heart, giving us a a, a clean heart and writing his law on our hearts, um, this being a work of God, this being a work of the Holy Spirit. Um, The connection between obedience to Jesus' teaching and bearing God's name is underscored in every time, in every instance, with the sending of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus said, you know, I won't leave you as orphans. I'm not going to leave you to figure this out on your own. I'm not going to leave you to try and just work your way up to some kind of righteous life. Um, I'll come to you and I'll be with you through the Holy Spirit. Uh, so this is what it says uh, as it is up on the screen. I am the true vine and my father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and your word, and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete." So, quite poetic, isn't it, Jesus? Um, But the most obvious message here is that our faithfulness as a people, oh, thank you, Lance. Our faithfulness as a people um, is a direct outcome of our relationship with Jesus. So Jesus uses this very familiar image of a vine to spark the imagination of his disciples about this reality, about this idea of their identity, their collective identity in him. The vine, um, the, this sort of carved vine here, was um, there was a vine on the temple that, that was carved into the side of the doors when people would go in. Um, and the the vine was a symbol of Israel in the Old Testament. So, so Jesus wasn't inventing a new image here. Um, the vine was a national emblem is, of Israel, just kind of like the kiwi maybe uh, might be our, our national national emblem. I'm not sure, um, or the eagle, you know, for the Americans. When they when you go into an American sort of government building, there's a big eagle on the ground. So for Israel, the sense of being uh, a people was, was located in this metaphor of, of the vine. Um, when Isaiah was reaching for a metaphor to try to describe uh, Israel prior to the exile, he, he, his mind went to the image of an unfruitful vine, a vine that doesn't produce fruit. So the disciples wouldn't have missed what Jesus was talking about here uh, when he was talking about the vine. They would have understood it in the sense of a, a people, a group. Um, but the difference is that uh that Jesus was saying that he was the true vine he was the the real vine the genuine vine so he's placing himself at the center of this new israel this new collective identity of the people and um yeah if i i if the disciples were anything like us which i think they were they were just ordinary people like us with ordinary minds um you know I think they had probably c- encountered various versions of what what was presented to them as true life as true collective life um, which looked real and then turned out to be false um, and I remember when I first started high school um, I don't know if anyone can relate to this, but first started high school in a big high school I'd come from a little little primary school and it, I would travel across the city to get to to this big high school where I knew nobody so on the first day it was like oh, I really need to I need to make a friend like really fast I don't want to like get get left out I don't want to get left behind here so I was desperate to, to find this group identity you know who can I belong to what which crew can I roll with what friends can I make um and at the time I was I was crazy about skateboarding I think I've got a photo here actually yeah there we go <laughs> um so my strategy uh, was to just be this beacon of skate culture. I had like all the labels, I had the bag, I had the shoes, I had the you know the the skate brands. I was like, I'm a skater. <laughs> uh, anyone out there is a skater, you know. Like, that's that was my strategy to try and attract like-minded people as a as a 12, 13 year old. Um, and it worked. So I I found other skateboarders, and we we kind of had a had an instant crew. And I I thought, great, you know, I found my found my crew, I'm going to be safe. Um, and I felt, you know, peace and knowing that I wouldn't just be adrift trying to find mates at, at high school on day two or day three. Um, but the culture of that crew was really toxic, you know, uh, as high school groups can be. Um, it was full of bullying and, and a sort of pecking order strategies and who's the coolest and who's the best. Um and in the end, it didn't last very long our our thirteen year old ringleader got expelled for starting a fight, and the, the group <laughs> kind of just disbanded at that point so i I drifted around for a while and eventually started hanging out with with good people like like matthew uh, and other other weirdos who liked uh, baby boomer music and we found our new group collector <laughs> identity didn't we um so it's it's very it's very human, is what I'm saying. I'm sure we can all identify with this thing. Maybe even if you came in here this morning, you had that sense of, oh, I need to find someone to talk to. I don't want to be alone. Um, the sense of needing to be plugged in, needing to be plugged into a group. It's very human. Um, we don't really function on our own. We don't last long on our own um, without a group identity. So, but then yeah, like like the skate group, like uh, identities can sometimes be built on very shaky ground, you know, very unstable kind of group identities. So fear uh, kind of brought that group identity together. It was fear which motivated us to find each other. And it was also fear which kind of essentially poisoned it. Um, And for some people, that's their only experience of group identities, you know, that's how they operate in the world, um, just trying not to be alone. So we can only speculate about the disciples, what their what their experiences were. I don't know if they were into skateboarding, but you know they were into other things. Um, perhaps Simon the Zealot really uh, enjoyed his identity as a radical uh, activist, anti-Roman. Um, perhaps uh, Matthew, the tax collector, reveled in his identity as a um, you know belonging to this brave new Roman Empire and part of the you know the vanguard of 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 progress and. Um, or maybe he liked teasing his neighbors or whatever it was um, Peter Andrew, James, you know maybe whatever their group identity was as fishermen, um, maybe their identity was about being good fishermen, being providers for their family, being good business people, um, Whatever the case, Jesus says, all of those identities have to have to be put to the side for this this identity. I am the true vine, I am the true source of your identity, your group identity. The exclusive source of true collective life is Jesus, the vine. Um, and what gave him the right to claim that? Well, because Jesus understood himself as uniquely the one who was being tended to by God. It was God who tended to Jesus's life. It was God who, who was um, being reflected through Jesus. So Jesus was saying, if you're with me, you're with the Father. If you're with me, you're seeing the Father. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. I've uh, also had seasons of uh, cultivating a grapevine. I've had three seasons of cultivating a grapevine now. This is our driveway, uh, the day we moved in. We've pulled out some of the weeds. but um, As you can see, it's a little overgrown. Um, the, one of the first things that I learned about grapes and pruning grapevines is that you have to deal with the dead wood. So the dead wood is where the, is is where the borer starts to get in and it can, it can begin to rot the whole plant. So we've got two grapevines. One of them is almost completely dead because it's full of borer and it's, it's just holding on, but because I didn't prune the dead wood. Um, so, and the other grapevine is this one, which is, uh, which is, as you can see is thriving out of control. Um, And I've had to learn the second principle of pruning on this grapevine, which has been hard for me because I'm greedy for grapes. And the the principle is that if you don't cut back the live wood, then all you just get are lots and lots and lots of branches and lots and lots and lots of leaves. Um, So for me, I'm like, oh, I don't want to cut it uh, because there could be grapes on this, so I'm just going to leave it a bit. And um, what's happened now is it's gotten so big it's nearly pulled our fence over. And it, it didn't give... Must very good grapes. So I'm learning um, about this thing of pruning. Anyway, I think I should have read my Bible because the Bible tells us about, among other things, how to prune grapevines. Jesus says every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. And that that's kind of, yeah, that, that wasn't intuitive to me, but it, it's interesting thinking about it in the life of our church, in the life of this sense of being a collective people, right? What would it look like for God to be pruning us, you know, to be pruning the the fruitful parts of our church so that they would be a more fruit? Um I don't know the answer. I'm just throwing that out there. Um what would it look like? What would it look like for him to prune the parts of our church which are uh, long dead that just need to be snipped off? And I'm not talking about people. I'm I'm just saying like What's what's God doing? here? like the the. <laughs> just to be clear, in case you know, like, <laughs> I mean, you know, that metaphor of pruning, it feels uncomfortable, doesn't it? It's like, ooh, I, I don't want to be snipped. Um, but you know, I take comfort in the fact that it's 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 the Father who's the one doing the pruning. It's not us. It's not our responsibility to go around pruning things. It's the Father who prunes. And he's a skillful gardener, you know. He, he knows what needs to go, when it needs to go, as it needs to go, what needs to stay. All he asks of us is that we remain in him and remain in his words. As it says uh, in verse 10, uh, which is in there somewhere, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my commands and remain in his love. So it's important you know, to just make sure this is clear, that Jesus is not saying we can earn God's love through keeping his commandments. It's not a matter of earning. We know that God's love is uh, comes before us before we do anything for him. Um, his love, his great love for us motivated him to send Jesus in the first place. And he didn't send, uh, send Jesus because we deserved it or because we'd earned it. He sent it as a gift because that's what God does. He's a gift-giving, loving Father. And he sent Jesus while we were still sinners. Uh, that's when Jesus died for us. So we got no claims for any of this in terms of what what good things I've done and how that makes me better. We're not saved by our works. But there does seem to be this thing of an active role uh, an active participation in what, in what God's doing. Um, so what could be going on here? I think the, the biggest clue um, is the way that Jesus explains the connection between keeping his commands and remaining in his love, and he offers a model uh, of his own relationship with the Father. So he says, it's like this. It's like the way I do it with with my Father. So Jesus didn't keep the commands of the Father out of a sense of slavish obedience. He didn't do it begrudgingly. He didn't do it thinking that God was tyrannical and asking him to do all these things. He did it joyfully. His life was one of total surrender to the Father's love. And and in his complete surrender and his complete turning over of his will to the Father, um, Jesus became the perfect representation of the Father, if you like. Um, he became like a living icon of the Father. So Jesus' total submission, his total obedience to the Father is, ironically, the, uh, the reason for his total equality with the Father. Um, it ex- it, it, everything he did was an expression of the Father's will. So that's why he said, "Whoever seen me has seen the Father. Everything he did was a directive of the Father. So everything he said and spoke was, um, yeah, it was like, S- you see me, you see the Father. So his total submission to, to the Father was the other side of his total equality with the Father. Now, um, as I said last week, I think we, we just have this very quick tendency to go back to legalistic ways of thinking, to treat a passage like this as just yet another commandment to strap on our back, to load up, um, something we have to achieve through our own determination. And when we find ourselves unable to fulfill the commandment, we do often do one of two things. We either trivialize it, we say, well, it just really means just be nice, you know, just just be nice. I think that's, you know, we, we trivialise the, the richness of the commandments down to something like that, or we idealise it. We say, yeah, it's true, but, you know, one day in the sweet, sweet by and by we'll be like this, you know. But for now, <laughs> you know, we just, we can't do it. Um, and I think Jesus doesn't really leave either of those options for us if we take a passage like this seriously. He doesn't leave either of those options to trivialize it down or to idealize it up. He, take, he expects us to take this call seriously, that we can be a community who abides in God's love and keeps his commands. So it's, yeah, it's not pie in the sky and it's not Christian legalism. It's a genuine call to be the empowered people of God, to, to the glory of God. And this doesn't mean, um, this also doesn't mean passivity. It doesn't mean just, uh, well, it's all up to God, so I'm just going to cruise. Um, when Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, he makes it clear that it's, it's us who walk. You know, we walk in, in the Spirit. Um, we are walking in the Spirit as we're being led by the Spirit. So it's a partnership. We're the ones who walk, and the Spirit is the one who leads so the Spirit produces the fruit as we walk with the Spirit and the Spirit's, Spirit's guidance and empowerment. And, um, and the nature of the fruit, the fruitful life on display here, is the life of Jesus in us. So the fruit of the Spirit is just another way of talking about reflecting Jesus in the world. It's uh, um, Theologians would call it um, Christ deformity, becoming formed into the image of Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is a picture of Christ. Um, it's a pointer For the world to say, here's a community which is being formed into the living icon of Christ. This is what Jesus looks like. So, and I love how Jesus, you know, finishes here just by mentioning joy, you know. Um, This is a a joyful call. It's a a call to a a joyful life of fruitfulness. To be fruitful, to be nestled into the divine community. To be nestled into the life of the Trinity. And so... What is the command? It is, this is my commandment, Jesus says, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I heard from my Father. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask him in my name. I am giving you these commandments, so that you may love one another. So just as Paul's uh, list in Galatians is headed by love, love is the, the first fruit that he, he lists, so here Jesus sums up the whole the whole body of biblical commandments. He he sums it all up into one commandment, to love one another as I have loved you. Now it's um it's easy to lo- I guess it's kind of easy to love people in the abstract. Um but it's a different story when you're thrown into into genuine community with each other. Um it's a little bit harder to love people when they're right face to face with you because people we bother each other because we're different wills. But you know, on the other hand, I was thinking, you know, so many great stories in film and so many great stories in literature are about like ragtag groups of people who are suddenly thrown into um, you know, people with no no natural connections who are suddenly thrown in together to work Work, uh, work together to achieve something great. So like to fight back an alien invasion or, um, uh, you know, to survive in the wilderness. Often those films, are, they'll always present a cast of characters of, like people who are absolutely, totally different to one another. How could these people form a community? And yet they, they do, you know, they they form a community in the face of, um, of a shared venture, um, a shared threat. And um, in these stories, that the pressure that 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 comes on this group of people, um, bands them together. It bands them together, and they become something together. Um, and often, a level of self sacrifice is involved. You know, the best stories, the best movies, someone gives their life. Someone, someone has to take a take a hit for the group. So um, I was just thinking, you know, but wh- what is it about these stories that stand out for us? And, and I guess it's that. They all take place in extraordinary times, you know, uh, surviving in the wilderness or fighting off aliens or um, overturning a corrupt law or whatever it is. They take place in extraordinary times. Um, But there's not so many movies about a community just attempting to live this kind of life in the humdrum of ordinary life. They don't make movies about that. Um, I don't know, maybe it's too complicated to imagine. it's almost like we, we are capable of having these brief flashes of this life, um, but we don't know how to sustain it for very long. In Galatians 5, Paul seems to be aware that within the churches who he's writing to, um, there was this significant struggle to maintain communal life. He's writing to these people because he can see that communal life, it, you know, it's come together a bit like those movies, but now it's starting to degenerate, it's starting to break down, it's starting to fall apart. And he he alludes to this, um, the struggle that they're facing in various ways. He says, you know, let's not become conceited, provoking each other. So obviously that was going on, you know, let's not not do that. Um, But walk in the spirit and you'll put an end to strife and jealousy and anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, and things like that. So it's like Paul's like, you know, this stuff's going on. Uh, So he's writing as a pastor to address it. And Jesus's disciples also struggled with these things. You know, the the different temperaments, like I talked about, the the different political leanings of the of the different disciples, often led to just outright open air conflict with with the disciples between each other. Um, Mark chapter ten recalls the story, which you might be familiar with, of of James and John sort of spying an opportunity to 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 angle in and get the inside lane on on the disciples and get a little closer to Jesus to get into the to get into the inside group and um and this is what it says in verse forty one um it says uh, when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and john so um so even the even the disciples um even the disciples uh were like us um had difficulty holding real community together um and this is with Jesus like walking among them you know Like imagine if we had, um, you know, uh, if we were able to be with Jesus in in embodied form, how we'd think, wow, this will be easy. We've got Jesus at our church. No, (laughs) like the disciples were constantly bickering, constantly missing the point. Um, So, yeah, even with Jesus walking among them, disciples still seem to have these same proclivities to, to veer into conflict. So Jesus' response was, you know, to call them together and say, look, you know, you know, those who regard themselves as rulers, lorded over them, uh, with their high officials exercising authority over them, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So again, just like in John fifteen, Jesus notices this this tendency towards disunity, this tendency towards power struggles. And he knew that they wouldn't last long, you know, they wouldn't be hold- able to hold it together without, without, um, without some help. So he presents them with the standard by which real love can be measured and understood, and it is laying down one's life for your friends. So he says, as, as I have loved you, um, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you, so in the same way, in the same manner as I have loved you, this is how you're to love one another. Um, and you know, as w- whatever that word, whatever Jesus had in mind when he said, "As I've loved you," I, I guess we could say it meant the way he'd loved them as as their rabbi, what he'd modelled for them, and also as I as I have loved you in the same way, looking forward to the cross. Um, but the key thing is that. Um, Is the kind of love that that Jesus wants to make visible is not abstract or philosophical. It's not about our feelings. He's actually given us a a concrete picture of 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 what God's love looks like um, and and what it looks like when God's people love and carry his name and walk in it. And the direct This kind of love, this kind of radical love, this kind of laying down one's life, this kind of Jesus-shaped love, is is a direct result of our being loved by God. So again, Paul understood this in in a concrete way. You know, he understood that when he wrote to the Romans, you know, the Spirit has poured out has been poured out into into our hearts. You know, that poured the love of God into his heart, as he says in Romans. Or, um, Paul understood himself, he described himself as the as as the one who Jesus had loved. You know, he says, the one who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the life I now live through through faith. So love love can only be lived out in the context of other people. It's not a solo pursuit. Um and Christ like love can can only really be lived out in the context of people who we have to lay down our lives for. It's like it's um in the context of hostility, ultimately, that's what Christlike love really looks like. So, we have to somehow steer clear of this this um, way of thinking about love, which which is presents itself as just all about our feelings for each other, good feelings towards someone or something. You know, I love chocolate. I, I have good feelings about chocolate when I when I see some chocolate on the shelf, or you know, I love this person because I love being with them. They make me feel good. It's actually like uh, kind of inverting what what like love is really about. Um, the the te- Jesus teaching of love is the self sacrificial thing of, of giving ourselves over to others. So um, when yeah when we reduce it down to just good feelings, it actually becomes uh, all about really self fulfillment. It becomes I want to be with people who make me feel good. Um, that's not really love. Um, love is about giving, and love is about actions. So. How do we do it? is what I've been on and on about. <laughs> we we recognize that that we can't do it without being loved by God and being empowered by the Spirit. We need to recognize who we are as God's friends and to draw near to Him. So we're gonna be talking about this for the next four weeks. This is just a little, opening it up a little bit to think through what would it look like for our church to become uh, to, be, to, be, to, to have the hallmarks of, of Christ-like love? What would it look like for, for people to be able to walk past and look in here and say, whatever's going on in there, it's a different kind of love than, than anything we've really seen before. Um, what would it look like for us to be a people who keep the commands of Jesus, um, who really, who, who those words of Jesus to love one another really do live within us as a people? I'm up for that. I don't know if you guys are, but I, I, I'm up for that. I wanna see that. That's the kind of fruit that I would love to see in this church. So in the next few weeks we're gonna be talking about other fruit. But um but that's all I have for this morning. So I um yeah, I, I have a few thoughts here, but let's just let's just stand together and um and invite God. I feel like um I feel like there might be some people who, who are going to lend some words to to what I've spoken this morning. Maybe God's been um, stirring on a, a thought or a, or a phrase, or maybe it's even not necessarily related to the the words I've spoken. But let's just pause for a moment. Let's try our best to be still, uh, despite the noise. Let's open our hearts and say, Lord, would you speak?